Dear audience, welcome to episode 14 of Thinking Psychologist. It is our great pleasure to have Mark today with me. You know, Mark is one of the leading psychologists across the globe who has worked tremendously and has benefited the psychological society in a in a in a great way. Mark, welcome to Thinking Psychologist. All my thank, audience already All my audience already know about you because I have circulated your bio beforehand, so I don't need to do an introduction. But Mark, you know, since you're here, I would like a personal introduction by yourself, please. Okay. Well, my background is in social and personality psychology, and that's the area of psychology that looks at the combined influences of a person's personality, you know, what they bring to the situation and the influence of the situation they're in. The people that are there, their cultural context, uh, the tasks they're working on with others. What's the effect of your personality and your the situation you're in on your thoughts, emotions and behaviors? And for the last 40 years, one of my primary interests has been in the role that self-awareness and self-reflection play in human behavior. We can't completely understand why people think and feel and do the things they do without thinking about how they think about themselves as a person. So that's that's the kind of thing that sort of is the center point of all the research I've done. So Mark, you know, coming straight to the topic, you know, uh, I've been reading about you know what what Friedman has done and everything. You know, I understand what id is, what ego is, and what ego, super ego is. Okay. So initially, if we understand that me and you and every child in the world or every person in the world started from the starting zero point, and it is the society and the influences how we grew up shape up how you become a prince, how you become a businessman, or how you become a poor person. Okay. But what I don't understand, Mark, you know, you know, at a, at a certain point of time, you become someone. Okay. How does that? How does the influence of your past determine how you're gonna become in the future? Okay, so for example, you know, a person who has been grown in a in a you know you know in a kingly state or everything, do we determine that he's he's gonna he's not got not not gonna succeed in the future, or why is it that the people who have a bad background or even even a bad influence from the society or a family tend to become really superior and good people like you know good people doing good things in the world. You know that that doesn't really make sense, and everything about ego, super ego, it you know sorts of doesn't make sense over here. What are your thoughts about here? Well, the question that you ask is really the cornerstone of all of social and personality psychology. How do all of these different influences combine together to make us the kind of human being that each individual is? And it's a complex question, obviously, because you have all the genetic influences. We know that the way your brain is desire, designed at the time of conception influences how you respond to things. So genetics plays a role. Every experience you've had in your life, the way you were raised, the way you were taught, just the fact that you had this injury when you were little or you had this teacher when you got older, they all combine. So to answer the question, why does one person end up as a king and one as a businessman and one as a homeless person? It's just incredibly hard to answer. So every research psychologist sort of slices off a little piece of the question to look at. So I tend to focus on what has the person's genetic background and developmental experiences and personal experiences, what effect has that had on how they view themselves? Because you can raise somebody under very luxurious circumstances and still have them not think they're able to do certain things or that they're not worth anything 
Or you can raise somebody under very poor circumstances who has an awful lot of motivation and an awful lot of confidence. So we have to take a look at exactly how people think about themselves for good and for bad. You know, Mark, and, dipping deeper, how do people think about themselves? Well, I mean, too much is really the answer. We think about ourselves too much. And that's one of, been a, one of my interests is if you think about the purpose of self-thought, to think about, well, who am I? What am I like? What are my abilities? That, that, that ability evolved to get us to sort of think carefully about our plans of action, to decide what we're able to do or not able to do, what we all should, we should plan for the future or what we shouldn't do in the future. So it, all of those self-thoughts are really designed in order to make intelligent actions as best we can. The problem is we, most of the thoughts we have ourself, about ourselves are not like that. Our brain just thinks thoughts all of the time about us and who we are and what we're doing and did this thing happen for this reason or what am I going to do tomorrow and oh my goodness I have that thing to do three months from now and oh I'm thinking about the thing that happened two years ago and it's not helping us live our lives more effectively or to have higher well-being. So it's, it, that fascinates me both from a research perspective but in my own life how do you manage your self-thoughts in a way that promotes, promotes the best well-being because most of us don't do that very well. So Mark, you know, com coming to that particular point, you know, I have been experimenting with, experimenting with myself on that particular topic as well, you know, you know, uh, for, for example, if I'm looking for, uh, you know, um, a new growth into my role or I want to do something new, you know, there's always that self-doubt, okay, you know, and, and that self-doubt, you know, self-doubt is made up of multiple things, that's what I believe, you know, have I done good thing on a similar things in the past, that's one thought. Okay, you know, looking at my current circumstances, will I be able to do it? And if I do it, the biggest influence is what will the society think of me if I do it? So these three particular factors that combine together sort of influence what I'm gonna do in the future as well. But you know, those particular things that I'm thinking about have nothing to do what I am as a person in reality and what is my potential. And you know, that, that considerably is mind-boggling once we look at the, the current situation on, on how organizations are trying to innovate now themselves. You know, they look at if I have a current domain, I have built a billion dollar business, you know, I can do it again. But the situations are changing, the world is changing. What are your thoughts about that, you know, Mark, around that point? You hit on a very, very important point. You said that those thoughts we have about ourselves have nothing to do with who we are. I, I would modify that just a little bit. I would say they have a little bit to do with who we are. I mean, they are, it's not that they're completely wrong, but they're inaccurate, they're biased, they're incomplete. So I think what happens is when people think about themselves, they analyze their personality or their abilities or the, whether they're a good person or not, they, they think that is them, but the thoughts are not them. The thoughts are just a teeny little description of them. So sometimes when I, when I hear people say, and a lot of people have said that, that where well, your thoughts are not you, and that's absolutely true, but the thoughts are efforts to understand yourself in a way that makes you behave more effectively and have a higher quality of life. The problem is most people don't realize how inaccurate and biased and incomplete they are. And even if everything we thought about ourselves was accurate and unbiased and pretty complete, then you're absolutely right, it's still not us. It still can't capture the complexities of us as a human being. So I look at these beliefs about ourselves as little hints or suggestions 
or glimpses that help guide us as best they can. But it really does help to realize that this is a very incomplete picture of yourself and you have no idea how accurate it is. But Mark, you know, once you talk about the guiding part of it, you know, in some of the cases, they're guiding us in a wrong way, in the wrong direction all the time. If only you do not have that, you know, uh, distinction between what they are saying in your head. That That's what I think, you know, really, really matters a lot. Especially that's, when, that's yeah. absolutely true. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but absolutely true. You, you, you're absolutely right. Mark, you know, I, I want to talk about the framing of the situation as well. You know, if I'm in a particular situation, basically, Mark, I'm coming from uh, an organization who's trying to innovate in itself. Okay, so we are always faced with the dilemma of, you know, should I invest into this particular segment or not? Or, you know, if I'm if I'm trying to look at a new idea, how should I grow it, that idea? And the decisions that I'm taking towards that idea, you know, how do I know, how do I know that I'm not biased towards that idea? And that is where the psychology comes in in a big, big way. What are your thoughts around how, you know, young entrepreneurs like us who are trying to build new solutions around the globe, you know, should tackle this decision making in, in our daily lives? All of our views of the world and reality and the situation we're in, including in organizational contexts, they are all just, just our beliefs about it. We have no idea how accurate they are. So, so you really are absolutely right. We all filter our experiences and our interpretations through our personality, through our previous experience, for our assumptions about how the world works, for our assumptions about other people. So we are not getting a pure view of what reality is, is, is really. And I think if people understood that, again, just like they see themselves only in glimpses and hints, they see the world only in glimpses and hints, and they have no idea how accurate they are. So I think, I mean, we have to have a view of the world. And we have to have a view of ourselves in order to take action. If you didn't know who or what you were and you didn't know what the context was you were in in an organization, you couldn't do anything. So we have to take action, but I think we have to be a little more skeptical about the truth of our interpretations about the world because they're all filtered through. And, and it doesn't, doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong, but we just, we just don't know how right they are. Yeah, very true, Mark. Very good. Thanks for that. You know, Mark, I was going through one of your courses and, you know, interestingly, this caught my attention where, you know, Earlier, we were talking about two kinds of a personality, and then we are talking about five kinds of personalities, the personality traits that we have. And in my leadership coaching, when I went through, you know, I was, uh, you know, made to go into a leadership training where I was told that, you know, uh, you are a person who was always, you know, uh, how do I determine, you know, there was a series of questionnaires there, and it said that you're always leaving things behind you. You're doing things, you get excited, you do two things and then leave it and do things and leave it. You know, I would like to gain your perspective on these kinds of personalities that are out there, these five traits. And you know, how how is it is it possible to shift between the personalities and which is the most efficient one? You know, just your thoughts around that. Oh, interesting question. Um, personality is interesting in that way because when you take a personality test, in a business organization, for example, they're going to give you a score and they're going to say, you're the kind of person who tends to do this or that. The problem with that, I mean, it's not that that's inaccurate, but that is just an average for you. And what I mean by that is all of us show a lot of variability in our personality. So if you were told you're the kind of person that sometimes leaves things behind after you get the idea, well, on average, maybe that's true, but sometimes you don't. Uh, sometimes you do completely follow through. 
Or if I get a score that says that um, I'm a highly conscientious person, well, does that mean I'm always conscientious? No, sometimes I don't do what I should. Sometimes I don't follow through. So I think people underestimate how much variability there is in their personality characteristics. So when we measure somebody's personality, yeah, it, it helps to sort of know, oh, I have this tendency, I tend to do this, but it shouldn't be set in stone. It's not that you're always that way or you're not variable or it doesn't change. We have a tremendous amount of flexibility in our behavior and we have to, that's adaptive. We have to have the flexibility of sometimes pursuing that task until it's done. And sometimes we ought to let it go. There, there might be a good reason to. And again, in the self-reflection of, well, what do I do here? And what's the situation telling me to do? And what should I do? All of that interpretation comes into play in making the decision. Especially, Mark, you know, in, in our situations, how in organizations we work, as you grow up the ladder, the, the agreeableness, you know, how do I do I agree I'm a pleasing person or I'm, I'm a nasty person sort of defines how how you grow up you know so what are the you know what are the factors in the past that make a person um, you know more agreeable or less agreeable or is it the trait that person plays around with how does that work well and even that one very is variable of course I mean I'm a I'm a very I think people would say I'm a very agreeable person but I can also be extremely disagreeable at times so there's still variability around you know your tendency um like all personality traits agreeableness interestingly has a very strong genetic component as we look across people at differences in how agreeable and friendly and warm they are versus sort of mean and nasty and disagreeable and unconcerned about other people look at all that variability that you can see in other people on those traits and about 50% of that variability, about half the variability you see is due to genetic influences. Some of us have brains that lead us to be easier to get along with than other people do. So part of that is kind of hardwired. That doesn't mean you can't make yourself override your natural tendency. Maybe I'm too nice and every now and then I have to be meaner in order to get people to do things. I got to work on that because I'm not very good at it. So, so first of all, a big chunk of it is, is, uh, is genetic, it's inherited. But then again, your experiences, how were you raised? The role models that you had, your parents, your teachers, your coaches, how did they act when they were upset? How did they treat other people when they were displeased with them? Were they normally kind of agreeable or were they really mean and nasty and harsh? And you sort of learn from role modeling. Uh, the situations you've been, maybe you've been in situations through your life where everybody was sort of agreeable and cooperative and collaborative. Well, yeah, then you kind of learn how to do that. Or maybe you've been in jobs where everybody is competitive and nasty and cutthroat and that wasn't really you but you had to sort of adapt and become that way somewhat so again here as a social and personality psychologist we've got personality dimensions that have to do with genetics and early life experiences but then we also have the context we're in that we have to adapt to in terms of how agreeable we are so mark you know drawing a line over here and saying that you know uh, if a person is in a in in so in you know in a matter or a behavior is particularly like this, how much percentage would you say is it a genetic thing, and how much is the belief system that follows around it? So, for example, a person is 90% agreeable. How much is it to do with the genesis, and how much is the belief system there? Um, the the genetics, but uh, versus their beliefs, is that the question? Yeah. Yes. If you look across all studies that look at the impact of situations versus genetic characteristics, 
you find that on average, it, de it depends on the behavior and the characteristic, but on average, about half of our behavior in any given situation is due to our genetic predispositions, the way our brain is designed to respond a particular way. And the other half of our reactions has to do with the situation and how we interpret it and how other people are behaving and things that are coming to us mostly from the outside that we're thinking about. So it's about half and half. Uh, it's been a big controversy for a hundred years in psychology. Is a, is a person's behavior mostly nature, what they were born with, or nurture their experiences and how they were raised and the situations they were in? And it's been a big debate. It's only been in about the last 20 or 30 years have we had the research methods and the statistics and the ability to do genetic analyses that now answer the question and say it's really going to be some of both. Depends on the situation. Um, I mean, I, I'm agree an agreeable person, but if you put a gun to my head and said, I have to be really mean to people or I'm going to shoot you, then I'm going to probably be pretty mean to somebody, right? So um, it, it, it's always going to be both, but it depends on the situation and it depends on the trait. So, you know, in, in a way I'm getting a, you know, feed over here, Mark, that, you know, uh, I'm better off investing into an Aryan civilization or an RADF person with the genes of an Aryan coming in rather than, you know, <laughs> If I, if I know that better, yeah? Uh, possibly. There are small differences because of within any cultural group or a racial group. I mean, there's, there is, because there have been centuries of sort of inbreeding within groups and within locations around the world, you can find some small differences among cultural groups. You do. You find that this group tends to be a little bit more this and that group tends to be a little more that. But those differences are relatively small compared to the differences across people within every culture. So the averages between cultures do differ a little, but within each culture, you still have tremendous variability and you have that variability, whether you're in your culture or my culture or somebody else's culture. But yes, you can end up, uh, they've talked about that with, with Americans. Why are Americans just so individualistic and not, not communal enough, not collaborative enough at times? And they say, well, if you think about the people who had to come to the new world, back in the 16 and 1700s, who were those people that left Europe? They were the boldest, most individualistic, least fearful, most independent people. And so they come over here and populate this country. And so the initial gene pool in the, in the new world were people, if you set aside the indigenous people, uh, the Europeans who came really brought a certain set of genes that I think still influence American culture. So you mean to say the gene spills over, spills over, okay? Hey, similar thing thing can be said for Australia as well, Mark, where all the, you know, you would say, the people that were brought in from UK and stuff into Australia, the same thing would <laughs> I'm not going to comment on it, though, yeah. Oh, you could make that argument. I And I'll have to say, I, I had a great, 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 great uncle or somebody who was on the first ship. He was a prisoner on the first ship that took took him from Ireland to the penal colony in Australia. Yeah, so <laughs> he killed he killed a magistrate in Dublin or, or something. Like that. <laughs> you know, I, I've lived and worked with Australians, Mark. You know, they they are the best of the people in the world. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, every every culture has its strengths and its weaknesses, obviously. And uh, the people, I mean, you look at each culture and you say, yeah, I wish we would do it the way that other culture does it. And you look at other parts of the culture and say, no, I, I don't want to do it that way. So yeah, it, yeah, we're all sort of in this together. We have our strengths and our weaknesses. Understood, Mark. Mark, you know, the, the other thing that I want to talk to you about is, you know, the, the mindfulness topic, okay? You know, I, I am myself a big advocate of, of meditation 
and yes. the kind of distraction that's happening out there into the world uh, you know because i believe everything is around that attention where is my attention currently okay you know the instagram is trying to draw my attention the advertising is trying to draw my attention plus my head in my you know my you know the how i have been grown up my mind has been built it's always into the future on the past not on the present so my attention is at stake do you think mindfulness is a way that can bring us more towards the present and you know how does it um, impact our daily lives what are your thoughts around that well it really goes back to the thing i was talking about at the very beginning in the fact that we do think about ourselves too much our attention is directed toward ourselves and our needs and what's that instagram thing going to tell me you know that's going to be relevant to me and our minds chattering all of the time so that is just a curse of you know being human we just think about ourselves too much and we're too distracted by the things in our life that's relevant to us including social media so so how do we fix that uh we're not going to change the environment that would be the ideal things to everybody make the internet shut down for several hours a day that would help us <laughs> um well i know people do i know people who have software on their computers that you know turn their email email off for hours at a time and they can't unlock it it's fixed so they can set it so it goes off till you know later in the day because that way it's not the distraction that they're going is checking to see if there's something important on there of all of the things of all of the things that have been suggested for dealing with the fact that our minds are too busy we each think too much about ourselves we're too distracted mindfulness and other forms of meditation um is the only thing that i know of that consistently shows benefits doesn't 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 solve the problem but people who practice mindfulness regularly do have an ability to quiet down a lot of that internal chatter as you know um and to be able to focus on what's happening right here right now without thinking about the next thing or being distracted when the text message comes in so i i'm also a big advocate i've taught mindfulness um i got interested in some of these topics 25 years ago when i realized how my own thoughts about myself and my own runaway mind were ruining my life i would be in a situation that i should be enjoying i should be playing with my kids and i'm thinking about all the things i need to do and that meeting i have tomorrow i don't want to have and and i it wasn't until i started practicing meditation did i realize that i am ruining my own life with my own busy mind and that that got me interested in just people thinking too much about themselves nature has built that inside us smart as human beings to always keep us delusional and distracted right well only accidentally i think if you sort of think about the original evolution of self awareness and the conditions under which it evolved we would have been nomadic hunters and gatherers i mean that's where every evolutionary explanation starts right so you're living out there on the plains of africa Self-awareness developed initially we think to be able to think a little bit into the future to be able to imagine yourself in the future because that's helpful for planning where are we going to go tomorrow what do i have to do to get ready you know to protect myself tomorrow well when you're living as a nomadic hunter gatherer with no possessions and you know settlements you're only going to need to look look forward a day or two and it's how very helpful should we go this way or that way and you're thinking well maybe the lions are over there so we won't go over there you can project yourself into the future The problem is once the agricultural revolution happened and we began to settle down and we began to do farming we started worrying about the distant future because if you're if you're a farmer you got to think ahead when do I plant my crops how do I take care of them the whole time I'm looking to the future I'm working all day today to get my food ready 
but it's not going to be ready for several months. And then once it's grown, I've got to protect it against thieves and rodents during the winter. I'm always thinking about the future and the bad things that might happen in a way that was not true when we were living as nomads, hunter gatherers in Africa. So the problem is the ability to do this evolved under circumstances where it was very functional and it couldn't go awry. If you were a hunter gatherer, you weren't thinking about a week from now or finishing your college degree or paying your mortgage or saving for retirement. You were just getting through the next two days. Today, we're just so future focused. Most of what we do each day is not for the pleasures of that day. It's because working on this thing today, I think, is going to help me in the future. It's going to help me with a paycheck or a promotion or saving for retirement or whatever. So, so yeah, I mean, self-awareness evolved for a purpose, but then we changed our culture and our society in a way. So it became disadvantageous. We speak, we started thinking about ourselves too much. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that's my explanation and every, every, every ex evolutionary explanation is always, you know, a little bit of a story. Yeah. But that helps explain to me why it is our minds run away with ourselves. There would have been no reason to have a mind this busy yeah. back there on the plains of Africa. Yeah. Well, I believe, Mark, you know, just in a really interesting point over there, I believe the new tools and technologies that we are using currently are trying to encapsulate and, you know, cash upon that frequent dopamine rush of how frequently I can get people to think about, you know, a certain thing. You know, because that's a higher dopamine rush as compared to actually achieving that particular thing. So, for example, I was reading through one of the things from, you know, uh, one of the guy, one of one of the researchers as well, where he was talking about once you are having a really nice food, the the piece that you are having in your mouth, you're not thinking about enjoying it. You're thinking about when can I have the next bite? When can I have the next? <laughs> yes. Yep. I, yeah. I think that captures it. And social media allows us the dopamine rush of connections with other people, which have been very important throughout you know human human history is we have to have connections with other people so again out there on the plains of africa if you're sort of by yourself a while and then you saw another person you could join their group that was very exciting because that was protective now we're making connections with other people all day long and each of those is a little rush as if that connection is important to us and, it, and it's usually not in any real functional way anymore <laughs> the world is gonna go crazy Mark, really, really soon <laughs> I think, I think, you know, human beings, you know, have always been kind of crazy. I mean, in terms of just being dysfunctional, we aren't perfectly designed for the civilization that we've created. It's, it's amazing to me. We do as well as we do. We basically have the same brain that stone age people had. It has not changed. And the fact that we can take that stone age brain and even function in this technological environment is amazing to me, but so many human problems come down to our misfit that we were designed psychologically for a very different lifestyle than what we're living. And I think most of us wouldn't want to trade, even with all the craziness and technology, I don't know we'd want to trade and go back and, you know, be naked running around and out in Africa with a spear in our hand. Uh, I, I just don't think, I don't think we'd want to do that. We don't want to go back to the begin beginnings of evolution. Yeah, sure, Mark, definitely. But, <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, you know, once we talk about, you know, coming to the present and getting our mind under the control and, you know, what Buddhist monks have been doing, you know, getting away from all the attachment, as they say, you know, don't attach yourself to anything and then you are at peace and stuff. You know, uh, in my personal, uh, uh, you know, experience that I would say, there, there is a feel once you start to meditate quite a bit, you know, uh, 
it's it's sort of the feel of a zombification you know i would say you know where where you feel detached to the world as well and then the sense of a, a saint kind of a feeling comes in my question to you is if everyone started to do that across the globe they were more in the present and everything won't world be a different place will it be a a good place or a bad place where the people are maybe not imagining about the future still living more in the present the conflicts from the past and everything has resolved but won't be a different human would won't be that be a human different being altogether i think people would act, act and feel very differently I'm not worried about the zombification. I love that word. I think that's a great word <laughs> you just used. Um, I'm not worried about it because I have never met anybody, no matter how much they meditate and how good they practice mindfulness, who still did not think about themselves enough to get by, who did not think enough to have pleasurable experiences and connections with other people and fall in love and be excited about things. What seems to happen, in my view, is that the unnecessary self-related yeah. thoughts begin to fall away so they have greater equanimity and in an extreme case that would look like yeah they're becoming zombies but my sense is that that they're attuned to the present moment and when funny things happen they laugh and they feel emotional experiences but they're not worried about what happened 5 years ago or about what's going to happen 5 years from now they use their self-reflection when needed to make practical decisions A lot of people think that somehow you're trying to stop your self-thoughts. You don't want to do that. If you really stop your if you can throw a switch and stop thinking about yourself, I I don't even know how we would act. I I don't know what I I just when we got through talking here, I just sit here and say, "Well, what, what, I couldn't even think about what 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 should I do now?" <laughs> you know, I just get up and wander around like like a like other animals do. So, I don't think we're going ever going to get to that point. I'm not worried about that. Uh you don't want to turn off your self-thoughts. You want to use them selectively. I think about the self-awareness. It ought to work like a thermostat in a house. You want it to come on and turn on the heat when you need the heat and then you want it to turn off. I think self-awareness you want it to turn off. I mean, I'm sorry, you want it to turn on when you need to think consciously about something. And if you have to think about the future or plan or analyze yourself, sometimes that's what you need to do. Um but then it needs to turn off. I asked a meditation teacher once because I had this misconception that we were trying to stop thinking about ourselves entirely. And I said, "Well, if, you know, if a master meditator is supposed to stop their thoughts, how does the Dalai Lama write a book? How does he decide, "Well, I'm going to write this book?" Because he'd have to think about himself and make plans. And then when the guy answered, when the meditation teacher answered, I realized that was just an absurd, absurd question. Of course the Dalai Lama thinks about himself and makes plans and figures out what he's going to do. But then he it quiets down again. So mm-hmm. he needs to turn on the on the heat again. Definitely definitely they have to. <laughs> It's a, you know more people you know Mark honestly I believe more people should be talking about this topic you know. You know more people you know the the kind of the the speed in which this world is going you know people are not stopping and thinking about what they are thinking. And and what they are thinking and why they are thinking. And that is actually makes a lot of difference. you know are you using system 2 and emotional frame to drive your decisions or are you stopping and using the system 2 to analyze everything and then you're doing it and the framing comes into the picture right exactly i i that's a very important point oh, i mean one thing that helps as you know when you start meditating you realize how busy your mind is i remember wondering when i first started whether i was going insane i was thinking does everybody have all of this stuff going on in their brain all the time And the answer is yes, but I wasn't aware of it. 
to, but to be aware of it, as you just said, is really the first step. I had, I had a student once in a meditation class who said, I hadn't realized my brain thinks without my permission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought that really captured it very, very well. It just keeps on thinking and thinking even when you don't give it permission. <laughs> it's independent. It's like, you know, Mark, you know, uh, I was having a discussion with one of the authors from, uh, you know, Darwin's Apple. He's, he's written a book there. And mm-hmm. we were casual discussion on, you know, how there are two kinds of people who are sitting inside your head. And then, you know, he he, gave, he threw me a fact saying that, you know, uh, if I say, hey, Ash, you know, is it is it you talking? Well, no, if I'm talking to you, I cannot hear you. We cannot be the same person. And then he said that, you know, in your head is someone else talking. And you, you think that your decisions are being driven by you. But in the end, it's been driven by someone else. It's just that in the moment in between is the pure bliss where you take your decisions, right? That's probably right. Yeah. And if you think about this for your listeners who haven't thought about it before and they start really thinking hard about who's talking to who in my brain, I mean, exactly. And who's in control of my decisions? Uh, it, It just, I mean, there's not a good answer. I mean, there's ways of thinking about it, right? In terms of consciousness and things, but there's not a real clear answer. It can really make your head hurt when you think about it too much. <laughs> you know, recently, Mark, you know, I've been you know, practicing with new kinds of meditation as well. Uh, there's this thing called third eye meditation, okay, in which, you know, rather than looking outside, you start to look inside. You close your eyes and imagine a, a red door between the center of, uh, if you draw a line from your ears and from your head, there's a red door. And then you try to enter inside that door. You know, I did that, you know, I've been practicing that. That is a, a different feeling altogether. Yeah, you know, I bet it would be. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. I had not heard of that. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's a, it's a Brahma Kumari. It's an Indian thing that happens mm-hmm. and it's taken over the world as well. Where they say that you, your not self and your soul, all three sit together in a particular place. And, you, and you're not self. It's pure bliss. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. That's great. You know, once you go out there into the real world, Mark, you know, in real world, the things are growing real. The world is moving at a fast pace. And we as mindfulness people and everything trying to slow people down, that doesn't really gel well. You know, where you say that, you know, you need to stop and think clearly and then do it. But, you know, once I'm driving my strategic topics around the innovation, I feel mindfulness is acting in a big way where I'm able to stop and think about what I am doing. Most of the people just do things and do not stop and think of what they are doing. You know, what has been your experience, Mark, on that topic? You know, how have you in your life have been able to guide people on stopping in your life and doing things? And in your researches, is there something that supports that as well? Well, and and there's a trade-off. I mean, there's a certain kind of stopping and thinking that you're talking about that is beneficial and mindful. But there's also a kind of stopping and thinking that a lot of people engage in that is not really mindful, it's just more obsessive thought, sort of born out of insecurity or uncertainty about what to do. And the trick is to sort of know the difference between those two kinds. Uh, I was I originally um, sort of learned a different sort of meditation than mindfulness originally, because mindfulness is very mindful. I mean, you're thinking about your thoughts in a way. And uh, the meditation I first learned was more of an open field awareness where you're not analyzing, you are trying to sort of see unfiltered reality with as little commentary on it 
as possible, including commentary to your behavior. So when I needed to think about something to make a decision, like the Dalai Lama writing a book, well, then that for me falls down in the conscious, you know, that, that, that's a conscious reaction. It's not an automatic, non-conscious, don't mess it up with conscious thought kind of thing. So you know, I think about sort of if you could go through life in a flow experience, uh, you, you know, you do have to stop and think now and then about certain things as you go. But the rest of the time, I wouldn't want to think about the fact I was in flow because then you're not in flow anymore. So there's just so many distinctions here. I mean, there's just so many nuances and distinctions about different ways to manage your thoughts. And some sometimes it's better to label them and to think about the thoughts that you're having. And sometimes it's better to try to let them just sort of drift by when you realize they're not being helpful and just sort of go through and experience the thing that you're doing right now without any analysis whatsoever. It all goes toward the same thing. There's no one magic bullet that's going to shoot down excessive self-awareness. Uh, each one of us has to find the strategies that work for us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. That was really helpful. You know, Mark, one of the questions that I keep getting from my listeners as well, and you know, I almost ask everyone, you know, um, we as human beings strive to strive for success. And then we look up to our mentors, okay, who have been really successful, be it Steve Jobs, be it Bill Gates, or be it, you know, Jeff Bezos and everyone. You know, the people ask us, you know, uh, their success is heavily dependent upon how they look at the world in a different way. You know, what is the psychology behind being us being successful? You know, so, you know, my question to you, Mark, and all my listeners want to listen to you as well on this part. You know, what makes a person successful? What goes inside his head? What motivates him? And, you know, you know, how does he see the world in a different way that makes him successful? I don't know. <laughs> if I did, I could make millions of dollars. You and I could go together and do training and make everybody of Jeff Bezos. Uh, one thing about using people who are that successful as exemplars is they really have had an exceptionally unique combination of genetics, education, personal experiences, opportunities. And without that really unique, optimal combination, they wouldn't have become who they are. We sort of act like somehow we had to go and if we could think like they think, then suddenly we could begin to move in that direction. But just as we are each unique and everything that's happened to us and our genetic makeup and our developmental experiences and our life experiences, uh, so are they. So I've often recommended to people, don't look at those kinds of exemplars. It's sort of like if I wanted to go play basketball right now, just out, out here. I mean, I'm a terrible basketball player, but I don't want to go look at a world championship basketball player to learn how to play. That's not going to help me because yeah. he's got all kinds of special characteristics and experiences I don't. So I think we should choose our exemplars carefully as people that we kind of think have some kind of insight, some kind of approach to life and the job that we could potentially learn and adopt. And successful people, they can give you hints along the way. And maybe it's not that we ought to have just one person who's an exemplar to us, but to sample lots of successful people till we, till we find the thing that rings true with our personality and our goals. And, and I think that's what most people do when they're striving for, for professional success. They do sample, both from mentors and from books and articles and things online, looking for the thing that resonates with them. The other thing is, I mean, our values come into play too. 
I, I don't know the history of these, you know, giant CEOs that you named in terms of their personal lives or values, but um, a lot of people make a lot of money and are very successful by doing things that you and I might find we just can't make ourselves do. They would be unethical. Um, and other people, so, so you have to find the, the shoe that fits to wear in professional life. I think it's also important to define for people to define what they think success is. Is it money? Is it impact? Is it social attention? Is it simply satisfying some goal that you think is important, even if it doesn't get you any of those things? Is it having high quality of life where you can go home and forget your job in the evenings and get a good night's sleep and not worry about it? I mean, different people have different metrics for what that means. I think what they all come down to is when people strive for success, they're trying to improve the quality of their life. You know, whether that, again, whether that's financial or living circumstances or attention or social contacts or whatever. So I think the question I have my students consider is what kind of life will most improve your quality of life? What balance of all of the different domains of life is going to make you happiest and most satisfied as you move through life? And being uber successful may not be the thing that's going to enhance your quality of life the most. So you're saying that the 60, 70 years on earth that we have got, you know, try to be content and happy on what you have and try to make it a little bit better as you go. I mean, I think for the vast majority of people, for 99% of the people in the world, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. Because it's it it because other we don't know how to do it any other way. I can't become super super successful and rich. So let's just make things a little bit better. There's yeah. plenty of people who are not successful in the eyes of the world who have delightful lives that when they die they're going to think I had a great life. Were they successful? Well, not by the world standards, maybe, but in terms of having a high quality of life, yes. And I just, I mean, my own values say that's the bottom line. Let's strive for a high quality of life. That doesn't mean goofing off all the time. Some people think, well, high quality of life, you just go on vacation. No, you don't have money to go on vacation. You got to go work, do some good, do something um, to have a high quality life. So that's my personal answer. I don't know if there's any justification for it, but try yeah. to improve improve the quality of your life whatever that means maybe if you could could um, you know give every people in the world all the food and all the water they want to drink and a, and a livelihood maybe that kind of a mindfulness will kick in a big time we it don't could. don't yeah, need take pressure you know, off. you know run behind the you know dopamine rush in a, in a way but we as a human being have they have this competitive you know competitive nature inbuilt inside us you know, even if we create a, such a kind of a society, again, the hierarchical models will kick in, you know, so that's, that's for sure going to happen. You know, Mark, yeah. we, are, we are running into like 40th minute of our conversation and, you know, it, it just went free it flow. It flies by, yeah, flew by. <laughs> it just flew by, you know. You know, thanks, Mark, you know, the attention span is slow and, you know, people tend to drop off on my podcast roughly around 40th minute and everything. So, you know, I don't like to drag it much further. But Mark, you know, the last question that I would like to ask you, and probably that is the that is the most important one as well, and it's going to help my listeners here as well. From all your past experiences that you have had in psychology, you know, what is the one key takeaway that you would like to give to my listeners to make their life better? And, you know, you know, in a, you know, one thing that have struck you and that you would like to give a, give away for free to all of our listeners. 
I, I think it goes back to much of what we've talked about. The quality of your life depends on how you think about yourself, how much you think, the content of what you think, the accuracy of what you think. So just don't let your brain think without your permission. You sort of need to pay attention to the quality of your thoughts, not think too much, not be grandiose in your thoughts, not be overly negative in your thoughts. Be careful about what you think because it determines how you feel. Thank you, Mark. With that, we come to the end of episode 13 of Thinking Psychologist. It was a pleasure having you. It was a pleasure great, having great experiences and hope you had a good time as well interacting with me. I did. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Right. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. Yeah, that was great. <laughs>